uh, starting off when he makes his triumphal entry into uh, Jerusalem here today. And then, of course, he'll be hanging on a cross this Friday, Good Friday. You'll hear from Pastor, Brent, Pastor Ben uh, this Friday at 6 o'clock uh, for our service there. I hope you're making plans for that. Uh, also, our choir, I believe our choir is singing the Good Friday also. We have two songs, so you'll get a chance to hear them. And then two more songs on uh, Resurrection Sunday. So I'm hoping you have made plans, not just for you and not just for your family, but hopefully you're inviting those around as well. It's a uh, number one reason why people do not come to church is they are not invited. Okay, so please make sure you invite someone to hear the glorious news. All right, you've hopefully found your way now to the Gospel of John, chapter 12. And uh, I just want to start off with a, a couple little comments here, and then we're going to read this section. Uh, you know, the longer that I am a Christian, the more often I'm saddened to hear that uh, people who made a profession in Christ... And then begin and begin to follow him, but then later fall away and are now not with. Are they? I should say they're far from God now. And in most of those cases, they were actively involved in a local ministry in their church, just as the Lord had commanded them to do. But something went wrong, and now they're not serving in any ministry, and uh, they are far away from church. Some are not even professing to believe in Jesus anymore. You know, that the Bible is rife of examples of spiritual failure. Sometimes things in their life or their ministries uh, that they were active in just didn't go like they hoped they would go. Sometimes they were hurt by other believers who violated their trust. Some have nagging doubts or difficult questions uh, that, about the Bible that were fed by skeptics, and they just started to believe that instead of the Word of God. In many, many cases, the person fell away because they fell into some serious sin. Again, this should not surprise us since the Bible contains many examples of this. Perhaps Judas is the first person who comes to mind, isn't he? When we talk about someone who was walking with the Lord for three years, was one of the disciples, and yet we know of his tragic ending as well. He traveled for Jesus three years, as one of his, and yet he fell away. What about Simon the magician in Acts chapter 8, who professed faith in Christ? He was even baptized, and then tried to buy spiritual power from the apostles so he could impress them with his miracles. And while the reasons can be different from those that fall away from the Lord, even after a profession of faith, at the very root, the very root cause of this is that the person either never knew who Jesus was, or they lost sight of whom Jesus is, and replaced Jesus with a Jesus of their own liking, a Jesus who fit their lifestyle a little better. A Jesus who would wink at some of the sin in their life, not condone it like the Jesus of the Bible. Understanding who Jesus is is crucial because your eternal destiny rests on believing the truth about who Jesus is and what he did on the cross. 
It's not just a lighty thing, a light thing. It's not just a, a light theological thing that we get to sit around and debate. Your eternal destiny rests on that truth. Who is Jesus Christ? And what did he do on that cross? That's why John wrote in his gospel later in John chapter 20, verse 31, I write these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, is the anointed one, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. What kind of life? Eternal life. If you truly understand and believe who Jesus is, you will have eternal life. But if you have a false notion about who Jesus is or a false hope about what he'll do for you in this life, at some point you're going to be disappointed and you're going to fall away from your initial profession of faith. Because the Jesus that you've invented doesn't really exist. And then when you face a hard trial in your life, or when something doesn't go your way, or when you can't figure out why life is just kind of dumping on you at the moment, you don't have any resource to go through except the Jesus that you invented in your mind. And may I just lovingly share with you that the Jesus you invented in your mind has absolutely no authority and no power. We're going to see an example of that this morning. The passage we're looking to look at is called the triumphal entry. And it's called that because of the tremendous reception that Jesus receives when he enters into Jerusalem at the Passover feast. But this triumphal entry was also simultaneously a great tragedy at the same time. Yes, there was a great triumph in the culmination of God's redemptive plan for man. But there's also a great tragedy as, as well in how many people professed that they believed in Jesus as the Messiah only to fall away when he did not meet their expectations. Now, as we approach our text here in chapter 12, I want to remind you in terms of Jesus' life, and we've only got about six days at most as far as his earthly life and his earthly ministry is concerned. He's winding it to a close, culmination of three years of ministry, 33 years on life. But it has done so also with a tremendous display of Jesus' power and authority because right before he's going to come in, he actually raises Lazarus from the dead. The day is most likely Sunday that we're looking at in our text. So let's take a look at that, shall we? I just want to read, beginning in the Gospel of John, chapter 12. We're going to read from 1 to 19, okay? I just want you to get some context here. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving. But Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. 
but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, said, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor people? Now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. As he had had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. And therefore Jesus said, let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. The large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there, and they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. But the chief priest planned to put Lazarus to death also. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees, went out to meet him, and began to shout, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at the first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. So the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify about him. For this reason also the people went and met him, because they heard that he had performed this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. So as we approach here again our text, here we look in verses 1 through 11. Jesus' good friends, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, were all present. And at least some of the disciples, perhaps some other friends of Jesus as well. This is also, again, as we read, where Mary anointed Jesus' feet with expensive perfume in a great display of love and worship. But it's also where Judas Iscariot begins to show his own false profession through the false compassion for the poor, which John points out only identified his great greed and his future betrayal of the Lord. At the same time, at the same house, on the very same day, in the very same context, are two completely different responses. Jesus, who had raised Lazarus from the dead, we have Mary taking the, the, the best thing that she has, probably something she was saving for her wedding day, the most expensive thing, the most treasured possession of hers, and pouring it over Jesus' feet, and then taking her hair and wiping it as this immense display of love and worship for Jesus. And there sits Judas in the same room, in the same context, saying, what about the money that, hey, you know, we could have sold that, and I could have taken that money for myself.
This provided Jesus the opportunity to explain the significance of what Mary had done in light of the things that he would very shortly suffer. The next day, in verses 9 to 11, we read that many Jews came to Bethany to see him and also Lazarus. Many Jews. More and more people throughout Jerusalem were becoming aware of the fact that Jesus was not only in Bethany, but that he was planning on coming to Jerusalem the next day. And there was such a, ga- a great gathering about him that the leaders were very concerned as to how they might kill him because they saw him as such a threat because people were starting to put their faith, or at least professing their faith, in Jesus. That brought us to our text here today, beginning verses 12 and 13. On the next day, we see... The large crowd who had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem took the branches of the palm trees, went out to meet him, and began to shout, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Our first point here this morning, verses uh, 12 and 13, triumph and tragedy in Jesus's... There's triumph and tragedy in Jesus's providential orchestration of these events. What do I mean by that? Jesus is orchestrating every single one of these events. He is over. There's nothing left to chance. No stone unturned, as we're about to see. But there's great triumph in that and great tragedy as well. So by now, we come to verse 12. It's the morning of the next day. And during the middle of the night, Jesus has already plotted, or Judas has already plotted with the leaders of Israel to betray Jesus. That's what's going on before the night, during the night. It's now only a matter of finding the right moment for Judas to betray Jesus and then turning him over to the Sanhedrin so they can capture him. But I want you to understand that Jesus is not at the mercy of Judas, nor is he at the mercy of the leaders who want to kill him. He is in absolute control of every single event that's going on. We might, even, we might even say everything looks like it's right on schedule. He's been anointed. His friends are caring for him. Many Jews are coming out to see him. And Lazarus, whom he has raised from the dead. Did you notice in that reading how many times John says Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead? Verse 12 again, John identifies who's coming to see Jesus. He calls them a large crowd. You might have a large multitude in your translation. The the large crowd that John refers to in verse 12 is different than the one we saw in verse 9. The one in verse 9 were mostly Jews, most likely residents of Jerusalem and who came to Bethany the day before to see Jesus and Lazarus when he was at still at Simon the leper's house. But the large crowd we see in verse 12 are not just the residents of Jerusalem, but these are Jewish travelers who are there for the feasts. These traveling Jews most likely have been camping out all over Jerusalem, all over the outskirts of Jerusalem. And they have come there, and they're a very large crowd for the Passover feast. How large is it? 
Well, Josephus, who's a Jewish historian, estimated that the number of Jewish travelers at a particular feast, which was about 10 or 12 years later, was 2.7 million people. How do you come up with that? Well, he knew that they had slaughtered 265 to 270,000 lambs. And by the law, you would do one lamb for every 10 people. That's a lot of people, isn't it? 2.7, 2.6 million. How many of those do we think went out to meet Jesus? Wow, if we even just said somewhere between 5 and 10%, we'd be somewhere around 150, 200,000 people. That's a huge crowd. It had to be an amazing sight. Here were thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of these Jewish travelers winding their way towards Bethany after the dinner party, meeting up with those coming from the Passover feast to see Jesus. Notice they're waving these palm branches. What's the significance of these palm branches? Palm branches at the time of Christ have become a national symbol. When Simon the Maccabee drove the Syrian forces out of Jerusalem, they greeted him with music and palm branches. And so palm branches were a sign of great victory for the nation of Israel. It's kind of like the people were saying, long live Israel. That's what it's like. The palm branches were a symbol of Jewish nationalism, a symbol of victory over their enemies. The crowd was hopeful that Jesus was the Messiah who would free them from Rome's oppression. In other words, they brought these palm branches with them because they saw Jesus, who is the person who would deliver them from Rome. Why would they believe that he could liberate them from Rome? What had he done in his earthly ministry that would somehow make him seem like he's this great military conquering hero? Verse 13, we saw that the large crowd of Jewish travelers believed that Jesus could deliver them from Rome because they saw him as a conquering king. Let's look for a moment at what these Jewish travelers were crying out. The first thing they cried out is, Hosanna. The word Hosanna literally means give salvation now or save us now. But it had come to be used simply as an expression of praise. It was kind of like saying, hallelujah, or praise the Lord. But this expression of praise was not all that was said. They also said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You see that? That blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord is from Psalm 118. So keep your place in John, if you would, and go back to Psalm 118. I say go back to because if you were with us this morning, you were already in Psalms this morning in Sunday school. Psalm 118. These are part of what's called the Hallel, which is where we get the word hallelujah from. Hallel means praise in Hebrew. These are the praise songs. These are the songs they would sing when they were heading up to the temple. They would sing these psalms. Psalm 118, uh, beginning in Psalm 118. Notice Psalm 118, verse 22. The the quote is actually from verse 25 and 20, or 26, I'm sorry. But notice 
Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Whose doing is that? This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Verse 24. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Verse 25. O Lord, do save us. O Lord, Hosanna. We beseech you, O Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity. Notice verse 26. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. They understood this to be a messianic psalm. They understood that's who they were identifying. These Jesus, the, the Jesus, the travelers were pronouncing a blessing on the one who came in the name of the Lord. In other words, they're pronouncing a blessing on the Messiah who was sent by God. <coughs> Excuse me. And that thought is reinforced for us when we read the very next phrase that these Jewish travelers cried out. They said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And back in our text in John, he adds in there, even the king of Israel. And even the king of Israel is not from Psalm 118. It does confirm to us that he who comes in the name of the Lord was the messianic title even the king of Israel. That's truly an amazing scene that's being pictured for us in this passage. Jesus has set everything in motion. He's sovereignly in control of every little thing. He's providentially orchestrated every element of his own ministry, every turn, every action. Why? Why would he do that? He wants to demonstrate to the world that he's not a victim here. That it's all under his total control. It's all within his own power. Every detail was worked out before time began with absolute precision. And unlike the vast majority of his ministry in which he moved away from the large crowds that would gather, this time he wants to create a mass demonstration. He wants the people to cry out, Hosanna, save us now. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, Messiah, the King of Israel. He wants that coming out of their mouths. He wants them to cry out that he's the Messiah because he wants it in, in their very mouths that he had indeed proved to be who he said he was. He wanted the whole crowd, that whole multitude, to be crying out that this was the Messiah so that forever and always it could never be said that they didn't have enough information. They knew exactly what he had taught. They knew exactly what he had done. And there's another reason that he created this mass demonstration, and that's because it would lead to the anger of the Pharisees, which in turn would lead them to desire his life, which he had set in motion too, because it's, it was important that he would be selected to die, and that he would be selected to die on the Passover day. I don't know if you know this, but the day he rode in there on Monday is the day traditionally that the Jews selected the lamb for sacrifice for the Passover feast. And in that is the day 
in which he offered himself as the Lamb of God, the Lamb who would take away the sin of the world. He providentially orchestrated it all in motion so that by Friday, the Passover day, they would sacrifice the Lamb of God for the sin of the world. And so Jesus providentially orchestrated all these events. He's in control of everything. Everything is on divine schedule. Notice verses 14 to 18, which we read then earlier. We also see triumph and tragedy in the fulfillment of prophecy. Not only was Jesus' entrance providentially orchestrated into Jerusalem on a young donkey, was prophetically anticipated as well. John mentions two Old Testament prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. The first one was Psalm 118, which we just looked at. The second one is Jesus, that Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a young donkey had been prophesied in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. In other words, it's no accident that Jesus chose to ride a young donkey into Jerusalem because Zechariah, 600 years earlier, before Jesus had been incarnated, said he'd come that way, and he did. So let's take a look at that, Zechariah chapter 9. Verse 9, you're in John. So if you go backwards through the gospel, you go to Luke and Mark and then Matthew, and then you're going to get to the last of the Old Testament prophets, and you're going to see Malachi, and then right behind Malachi is Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 9. Can I just tell you this about this prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9? When you read Zechariah chapter 9, beginning in verses 1 through 8, it describes how Alexander the Great would conquer. And every bit of that prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9, 1 through 8, was fulfilled literally. When you read Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, it talks about Christ's first coming. And that was fulfilled, literally. And when you read Zechariah chapter 9, verse 10, it's about his second coming. What do you think the chances are that that will be fulfilled literally as well? Okay, I don't have enough time to dig into that anymore now. All right, look at Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble, mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. First of all, let's break that down a little bit. Who's the daughter of Zion? The daughter of Zion is a common way to refer to the people of Jerusalem. He explains that for you in the verse. And what do we see the people of Jerusalem being told in this prophecy? They're being told not to fear when they see their king coming to them, seated on a donkey's colt. Why? Because a donkey, unlike Zechariah chapter 9, 1 through 8, do you know how Alexander the Great would, would come into a city? He'd be mounted on a white stallion, and then behind him would be chained the conquering kings that he had conquered. And, it, and he would run through and walk through them and, and show them just 
how he had conquered and demolished every other city. Now, Alexander also was very merciful when he would come in. It doesn't sound very merciful, right? But he would come in. And then they would institute centers of learning and allow people to do their, they just had to, they just had to meet certain requirements, but wasn't as cruel as what they would face later. The Romans did the same thing. When they would conquer, their general would come in riding a white stallion. It was a sign of war. It was a sign of a conquering king. So the prophecy says here, when you see him, your king is to be coming in on a donkey's colt, the foal of a donkey. And a donkey symbolized peace in contrast to a white horse that symbolized war. So the prophet is telling the people of Jerusalem, when you see your king coming in riding on the foal of a donkey, he's on a peace mission. Rejoice. Rejoice greatly. O city of Zion, rejoice greatly, Jerusalem. Rejoice greatly, O people of God. He didn't come as a warrior. He came as a prince of peace, and he rode on an animal of peace to illustrate how he was coming. Isn't it interesting, though, when you think about Revelation 19? Because when Christ comes back the second time, what is he riding? A white horse the symbol of war. And the next time he comes, he's not coming for peace. He comes to judge and to make what? War. Although it won't be much of a war. This time, though, he comes in peace. He cried over the city of Jerusalem. John's point in referring to Zechariah's prophecy is to show that Jesus, in his first coming, was not coming as the conquering king riding on a war horse, but a humble king offering himself as a sacrifice for our sins. He's not cruel and oppressive. He's righteous and bringing salvation. Literally, the text says, showing himself a savior. He's not slaying, he's saving. He's not rich, he's poor. He's not proud, he's humble. The point is, he's a king unlike any other king. Once again, we see this great triumph in Jesus. Fulfilling these prophecies precisely spoke about the coming Messiah, the coming king who would be like none other, and they're crying out, deliver us, Messiah, save us, Messiah. And as the words are tumbling out of their mouths, they're confirming the fact that they know who he is. And then they even quote Psalm 118, which was the conqueror's psalm, saying, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is our conqueror. This is the one who's coming in the name of the Lord. This is our Messiah, is what they're saying. They believe this is their Messiah. And they sum it all up at the end of the... They believe he's their king, and they... But they don't understand the nature of his kingdom, do they? They recognize him as the Messiah. They recognize him as the king. They're crying out to deliver us. But when he he offers to deliver them, the tragedy is, is that they're going to reject his kingdom completely. They're going to sum it all up at the end of the week when they say, we will not have this man to what? Reign over us. 
the same man. Point number one, we see triumph and tragedy in Jesus' providential orchestration of events. Point number two, triumph and tragedy we see in the fulfillment of prophecy. Here's the last point, verse 19 in John chapter 12, just one verse. There is triumph and tragedy in the crowd's response. The Pharisees, who are the chief opponents of Jesus, are terrified by what they see when he enters into Jerusalem. The sheer number of Jews who enthusiastically support Jesus as their Messiah as he enters into Jerusalem push the Pharisees to the point of desperation. And they're now ready to do what perhaps they weren't quite so willing to do earlier, which was seize Jesus at the Passover feast. They didn't want to do that with all those people there because this is the same one that 200,000 people are showing and waving palm branches for. But they realize... It's out of control. What a glorious triumph it would be that day when the very purpose for his coming would be fulfilled. What a glorious day. What incredible triumph. But not the kind of triumph the Jewish masses who had accompanied Jesus in Jerusalem had expected. Because they were expecting something far different. It would be a very tragic day indeed. They expected when he entered Jerusalem to set them free from Rome, but he had come to set them free from their sin. They obviously were about to experience an incredible disappointment. They had come to Christ thinking he was offering something when he was actually offering something completely different. They thought he was offering military conqueror, he was actually offering salvation. This was not the reason why he had come. This was not the reason why he had willingly entered Jerusalem with him. So as you read this account in John chapter 12, which is it? Is it a great triumph or is it a great tragedy? The Jewish people who are part of this enormous celebration probably would describe it as a great triumph, but I don't think that Jesus would have necessarily looked at his entrance in that way. From his standpoint, his entry probably was more tragic than triumphal. Why? Because even though this large crowd of people had begun to see Jesus' true identity, they still very much had no understanding of why he had come. They thought this Jesus as a Messiah would overthrow the Romans, but that was not his intent. Their purpose, their hopes were fueled by those who had seen Jesus raise up Lazarus from the dead. And they thought, if he can raise Lazarus from the dead, he can certainly wipe out the Roman army. Verses 17 and 18 told us they were telling others about the spectacular miracle. Verse 16 reminds us that even the disciples didn't understand at first what was going on. Even they thought he would be uh, alleviate the oppression. It was only after Jesus was raised from the dead and ascended into heaven. It was only after Jesus was glorified that they connected the dots between the Old Testament and the New and the, what the crowd had done to Jesus. 
So even the disciples were pretty much in line with the crowd that day, viewing Jesus as their political and military hero, their savior, and as a result, their faith in him was severely shaken until they saw him raised from the dead. And I think there's an application for us as well so far in our text, and that is your faith will be shaken and perhaps even destroyed if you're following Jesus because of what you think he can do for you. If you're following Jesus because you think he's going to help you with your financial prosperity, or if you're following Jesus because he's going to give you good health and prevent you from getting sick ever, or he's going to provide some other temporal benefit for you. What if you contract a serious illness? What if you suffer a severe financial loss? What if your marriage is in the storybook, ideal romance you thought he would give you? What if your children don't follow the Lord or they turn against you? It's very easy for people to jump on the Jesus bandwagon when they believe that it'll improve their living conditions or make their lives easier. But this is not what Jesus is about, and that is not why he came into this world. Jesus came into this world not to give us better living conditions or to make our lives easier, but to set us free from the bondage of slavery, of sin, and the eternal damnation and wrath of God we will face if we remained in our sin. If your faith rests on the person of Jesus Christ as he has revealed himself in Scripture, then you will not be shaken no matter what happens in your life. That doesn't mean at times you're going to be questioning, but it means your faith will remain steadfast through it all. You will remain steadfast through it all. You will be not go, your, your faith will not be shaken whether you go to prison or you're blessed with prosperity. You may suffer terrible health and die young, or you may enjoy good health. But your faith does not rest on happy circumstances, but on who Jesus is and what he has promised his children through eternity. It was indeed a great triumph that the plan for the redemption of man would be fulfilled that very week. It was indeed a great triumph that the promised Messiah, just as God had said, arrived exactly on the day that God said he would arrive. But it was tragic that many would profess their faith in him, and yet not six days from that very day would fall away from him. They're yelling, Hosanna now, but they'll scream, crucify him by the end of this week. So why do you follow Jesus? The right reason to follow Jesus is because of who he is. Because of who he has revealed himself to be in God's holy word. He is God's anointed one. The rightful king over every heart and every life. And he died, for your, he died for your sins and he arose from the grave and is coming back in power and glory to reign over us all. So whether you struggle with tribulation or distress 
or persecution or poverty or health or death itself, you can overwhelmingly conquer if your faith is in him as your Lord and Savior. Neither life nor death, neither trials nor tribulation, nor persecution. Romans 8, right? Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Follow Jesus because of who he is, not because what you think he might do for you. That is where the real triumph in Jesus is found. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do indeed rejoice that your perfect plan of redemption It started at the beginning of this Passion Week on Palm Sunday. Lord, we look back at that, and there is such great triumph. Just as you said it would be, just as you had prophesied, Lord. And we can see your hand, God, orchestrating every turn of events, fulfilling every prophecy along the way, gathering your people in large crowds at the perfect time, so that our Lord Jesus Christ would offer himself up as the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. On the day when they would be choosing a lamb for sacrifice, Lord, you presented the perfect sacrifice yourself. Father, help us. We live in a world in which we are constantly told it's all about us. We're constantly told it's about our happiness, our good fortune, our wealth, our well-being. But your word tells us it's about you. Lord, we're so prideful, so self-centered, so egotistical. Forgive us, Lord, that we would make a profession of faith simply because we think think it might make our lives better. Father, forgive us. If there's one in our midst here today, Lord, who's made a profession of faith but doesn't understand who you are, I pray, Lord, today would be the day when they would cry out to you and surrender their life to you as you have revealed yourself from your word not an image that we have made up in our mind. Father, for those of us who have truly, truly surrendered, who understand who God is and what he has done for us, who are truly saved, oh, Father, I pray that we would not get so caught up in ourselves that we look to Jesus as some sort of genie in a bottle, that somehow is supposed to avoid any ill circumstances in our lives, but rather, Lord, we would cling to you. Your word doesn't tell us we'll be exempt from trials, Lord. Your your word tells us that you'll never leave us nor forsake us in the midst of them. You'll never provide, you'll never put us in a trial, Lord, that's beyond our ability to handle it. You'll always provide a way out and that you're faithful in and through each and every one. Lord, we're totally dependent on you. 
There is great triumph, Lord, in this Palm Sunday. But that triumph is found in who you are and what you did at the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.